Welcome to the Sensory Change Podcast, where we learn to think differently as a community supporting sensory kids at all levels. We share all sensory matters through discussions and interviews with experts in the field to get practical ideas and simple strategies to implement in day-to-day life. Here is your host and author of Against the Odds, Dana Latter. have Dr. Daniel Ansari with me today. Dr. Daniel Ansari is a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of West Ontario, Canada, where he heads the Neuromedical Cognition Lab. Hello, Dr. Ansari. Hi, Dana. Um, I was interested to know how important are early numerical skills in infants? Numerical skills are, are really critical uh, from an early age onwards. And indeed, of course, young children build the foundations for the kinds of mathematical thinking uh, and skills that they have to learn and engage in later on. So, you know, basic things such as learning the count sequence and understanding that counting is an activity that allows you to determine quantity is really a critical milestone. It's what we refer to as the cardinality principle when children understand that counting, the purpose of counting is the enumeration of sets. That's really the first foray that young children have into connecting symbolic representations such as number words with actual objects in the world and starting to carve the world out in numerical terms. So early numeracy is really critical, and that's been shown through a lot of longitudinal studies as well, that uh, early math skills are strongly related to later math skills. And uh, so early math is, is really, really critical. And how do, you, how do children acquire these skills? Well, that's a, that's a question that we're still trying to solve. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, really, uh, they acquire them partly because they're born with some sense of quantity, but then they also have to undergo a complex process of learning, and in particular, learning the symbolic representations. You know, number words and uh, numerals uh, are not something that we share with other species. They are the product of cultural history, and so their meaning has to be transmitted through education, be that informal education with parents or formal education in the classroom. So there's a lot of learning involved in in, in acquiring these basic numerical concepts. But certainly we do think that children are born with some sense of quantity. But what that sense looks like is currently quite a big subject of debate in the field. And in your research, did you research the connection between movement and learning? Uh, Well, I don't, but there is a group in Chicago uh, led by Susan Golden Meadow. She's uh, uh, an eminent scientist who's done a lot of work on gesture and the role of gesture and learning. And she has shown that gesture plays a critical role in in learning math. And, you know, there's also really great work on on gesture in uh, in teachers. And 
uh, how uh, students learn from the way in which uh, teachers gesture during mathematics education. In terms of other things, the, the link between exercise and math learning, there is some exciting work actually going on here um, at my university, at Western University, by my colleague, uh, Dr. Barbara Fenesi, who is looking at whether having short exercise breaks enhances children's math learning. And also she's looking at whether if you move while you're doing, for example, multiplication, whether that enhances your encoding of multiplication facts, for example. So yes, there is some work on the relationship between movement and, and math. Um, and it falls into the categories of gesture or the role of exercise, short exercise breaks and how they might enhance learning. Uh -huh. And are you able to share some of the findings of your colleague in the university you just mentioned? Your university? Well, I think some of, her, some of her findings aren't published yet, so I should, probably shouldn't uh, speak too much about them. But I can tell you about the approach uh, she uses. You know, she's working together with school boards and... Uh, literally what they do is they get up uh, every, I think, 15, 20 minutes during the lessons and do some exercises, you know, uh, squats and, uh, uh, and uh, burpees and uh, all kinds of jumping and so forth, uh, while they're also uh, rehearsing problems. And I think what she's finding is that there are some, some effects there, but I, I don't know what the precise findings are at this point of time. Still... Uh, quite new that data. Uh -huh. And now to the question, what is dyscalculia? Dyscalculia is defined as a learning uh, disorder in the domain of math. So children with dyscalculia are students who have persistent difficulties in acquiring even the most basic mathematical uh, concepts. So uh, we see, for example, that children are much slower at comparing which of two numerals uh, represents the larger quantity. Um, dyscalculia is uh, very similar to dyslexia. You know, many people know what dyslexia is. Uh, dyscalculia is, is essentially the same thing, but in the domain of mathematics. What we don't yet know is what causes dyscalculia. Uh, so we're really only dealing with understanding the correlates of having this math learning disorder, but we don't fully understand the causes. And they're bound to be multifaceted, uh, uh, going all the way down to the genetic level and up to the to the classroom level and to the experiences that children have in their environment. Uh -huh. And how can one overcome dyscalculia? I don't know whether you can truly overcome dyscalculia. I think that students who have really real dyscalculia are always going to struggle with math. But just like with dyslexia, I think you can give students uh, accommodations. You can try to uh, find activities that they find engaging that involve numbers and numerical information. And we also have to remember, of course, that mathematics is a very, very diverse subject. So, you know, mostly students with dyscalculia get diagnosed on the basis of their ability to do calculation problems. Now, it doesn't mean that if a student is weak at calculation problems that later in their life they might not uh, develop an affinity to, uh, you know, geometry or to statistics. So I think it's, it's perfectly possible for somebody with dyscalculia to end up in a uh, science, technology, engineering, mathematics-related career. So I think... Uh, just like with any learning challenge, it's important to try and find 
the niche uh, in which those students excel, and that will differ between students. Uh, so it isn't sort of a, a lifelong sentence that means you can't engage with mathematics at all. But I also don't want to sort of suggest that you can completely overcome it. I think you can you can develop compensatory strategies. Mm -hmm. And what would you recommend to a parent whose child was just diagnosed as dyscalculia? I would recommend that, first of all, you, you talk to your school, um, you talk to your teacher, you make them aware of this diagnosis. They are probably likely already aware that there is a problem and that then you try to find some, um, some ways of providing extra help. And now that is very challenging for parents because homework can often lead or doing academics in the home can often lead to conflict between parents and Uh, and and students so one has to approach the that is quite a delicate thing to uh, to do you don't want to sit a dyscalculic child down for hours and make them do math you might want to find some games maybe an app on 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 a mobile device or preferably board games to play with young children that involve numbers and discovering linear relationships and so forth Um, I also um, recommend trying to find some program that might work for the child that you can engage in, uh, in addition to their, the, what their, the instruction they're receiving in the classroom. And then also, finally, I would recommend, and unfortunately, this is not as sort of uh, not as organized as it is for dyslexia, but trying to reach out to other families who experience similar difficulties. I think that's, you know, parent advocacy and groups of parents uh, talking to one another is very powerful because they can, through that, um, really discover resources that they wouldn't have necessarily been able to find by themselves and also, you know, just receive some moral support. Other than that, I would, you know, as as for information about dyscalculia, I would uh, uh, recommend uh, checking out the the pages of understood.org, uh, which is a, uh, a non-for-profit organization out of the United States, which uh, 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 really provides a lot of useful information for children with uh, attention and learning issues, including dyscalculia. Uh -huh. And are there certain programs you could speak about helping in the early stages of the uh math? I don't really uh, like to, as a scientist, I don't really <laughs> like to endorse a particular program. Um, I would always, you know, the, the, the one thing I would recommend is try to find out whether a, an educational program that you're interested in is evidence informed. So ideally, you would have a program that has been rigorously tested and you could Check that out, for example, on the What Works Clearinghouse website of the Institute of Education Sciences in the United States. Um, but I think that's very important because there's a plethora of, you know, uh, programs around and not all of them are necessarily evidence based. So I think it's very important to try and identify a program that is at least evidence informed, if if not evidence based. Uh, um But, you know, I, I don't want to single out a particular program, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm not an expert in curriculum either. Mm -hmm. I research how to learn math and not necessarily, you know, I'm not necessarily an expert in what remediation approaches are yeah. the most efficient. And in Canada, how do the schools accept your recommendations, your university's recommendations on how to help kids with dyscalculia? It's 
I, I, I interact a lot with schools, school boards and educators. You know, I have to say it varies. There's still a, there's still a, a, a substantial gap between research on how children learn and what happens in classrooms. And uh, we're trying to engage in that conversation uh, more seriously and trying to find ways of collaborating. Um, but, you know, I've had some very positive uh, sort of results in, in, in some of the work we've done on developing early numeracy screeners to help identify students who lack certain key competencies. Because really in math, they aren't very good screeners as they are in reading. So we're trying to fill that gap. And that's been very productive in working with school boards. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I would be lying if I would say that the reception of research in general, not just my own, in schools is varied. You know, there's there's some resistance as well to the idea that you do quantitative research on children. You know, that some some I mean that that gets very philosophical. Some people believe that's not not worthwhile, and that we should be just relying on intuition um, uh, in order to guide our education. So it's been varied, but we're making good progress, I would say. Uh-huh. And have you researched the like the connection of? sensory processing with children and dysfunction like dyslexia or dyscalculia? I don't think that dyscalculia is necessarily a sensory issue. Uh, it, it, it is possible, of course, that students who have sensory issues also have dyscalculia. That's one of the things I think that is coming out consistently with any learning challenge that you might encounter encounter that often a student will have multiple learning challenges at the same time mm-hmm. right so a student might have dyslexia and dyscalculia or a sensory issue and dyslexia or a sensory issue and dyscalculia so this what we refer to as comorbidity or co-occurrence of learning disorders is very common what we don't know is how they might influence one another or whether they exist independently in the same child um, but at the heart of it I think dyscalculia is a difficulty with Uh, forming a really fluent concept of numerical quantity and understanding the link between symbols and quantities. And then another dimension to dyscalculia is um, a difficulty with spatial visualization. Mm-hmm. I think that is a big, big part of dyscalculia. And of course, spatial visualization plays such a critical role yeah. in math. It's a kind of having a mental mental um, workbench uh, that is spatial in nature. And we do know that also from the neuroscience that the brain regions that are involved in spatial cognition are very closely tied to those that are involved in numerical cognition and doing arithmetic and so forth. And we also know that mathematicians tend to think about math spatially uh, rather than linguistically so that there is a connection there but that's not really sensory that goes beyond the sensory modality to something that is more cognitive in nature uh-huh but um, have you researched about vision therapy and dyscalculia to see if kids who've gone through vision therapy have been able to overcome some of their difficulties I have not and I'm not aware of of any research on that uh, my prediction would be that you know visual therapy alone probably wouldn't lead to change in dyscalculia visual therapy paired with high quality math instruction that may be a key but I think what we're learning more and more is that there is there is no magic bullet for example you know years many years ago, 
people were arguing very strongly that, you know, if you train children's working memory, that would also lead to improvement in their math and reading skills. That's what we sometimes refer to as far transfers. You, you train on one domain, in this case, working memory, and you expect that to transfer to another domain. It turns out from lots and lots of meta-analyses and large-scale randomized controlled trials that that doesn't work. If you train somebody on their working memory, they get better at the working memory, but it doesn't transfer to the math. So I would say whenever you have something that is where you expect a far transfer, you should always pair the far transfer intervention with something that's near, that is the actual math instruction. Exactly. Dr. Ansari, I really enjoyed speaking to you and learning so much more. And I appreciate your time. My pleasure, Dana. <laughs> nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. I'll send you the link. Thank you very much. All the best. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sensory Change podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. For more information on sensory input and ideas, visit danalatta.com. Join our community this month to get a free seven-day online course packed with practical sensory activities and strategies.